Thank you very much. Uh, it's really a privilege uh, to be with you. Uh, it's not onerous at all to come to San Francisco. In fact, I tell people when I go back to the East Coast that I can't figure out why I came back after having experienced life here. Uh, I do want to thank Congregation Emmanuel and its leadership and J Street for allowing this opportunity and to also congratulate you for coming out this evening for a conversation uh, within our community on issues that are critically important to the security and well-being of the United States as well as uh, critical to the security and well-being of the State of Israel. And it's that a convergence of interests that uh, will, in some ways, uh, characterize my remarks tonight. Uh, I would ask your indulgence uh, to do something I normally don't do, and that is to pull out my iPhone, because I want to quote from our Secretary of State uh, an interview that he gave this afternoon in Israel to uh, a Palestinian and Israeli uh, television station. And I want to quote uh, what he said and in some ways, it's the punchline of what I'm going to talk about tonight. He said the following, if we do not resolve the issues between Palestinians and Israelis, if we do not find a way to find peace, there will be an increasing isolation of Israel and an increasing campaign of delegitimization of Israel. If we do not resolve the question of settlements, and the question of who lives where and how and what rights they have, if we don't end the presence of Israeli soldiers perpetually within the West Bank, then there will be an increasing feeling that if we cannot get peace with a leadership that is committed to nonviolence, you may end up, you may wind up with leadership that is committed to violence. Now, in some ways, this could be the conclusion of my remarks tonight. Because what the Secretary of State has done is, in a sense, launch the peace process. And so you can mark on your calendars tonight, in your presence here, as the beginning of what may be a turning point in the search for peace in the Middle East. Now, diplomats and politicians have a tendency to exaggeration and hyperbole, and why wouldn't we? We have the microphone and you don't. But the reality is that the Secretary has now started and embarked on something quite important and almost unprecedented in the history of America's involvement in the Middle East peace process. When he came to office just eight, nine months ago, he said, as many of his predecessors had said, that he was committed to trying to find a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And in a sense, he was following the advice and the policy of President Barack Obama, who you recall on his first day in office almost five years ago, went to the State Department to announce the appointment of Senator George Mitchell as special envoy and announced at that time that he, the president, saw the resolution of the Arab-Israeli conflict as a strategic national interest of the United States. In other words, not a favor that we're doing for the parties, not a throwaway foreign policy issue, but a critical component of our national security interests. Now, the books that Jeremy referred to that I co-authored or edited tried to dissect what went wrong with previous efforts to resolve this conflict. And we looked both at American negotiating behavior and we looked at the substance of negotiations to try to understand why previous efforts to resolve this conflict had run aground? And why was it that this seemed to be a conflict that was impervious to solution, that gave grist to the mill of Washington commentators and analysts who spend a great deal of their time and attention trying to explain why it's a waste of our national time, our precious policy time, to be focused on this conflict? What Kerry understood, however, with the President's support is that there is an intimate relationship between whether or not we work on this conflict and whether or not we make progress and everything else that we do in the Middle East. Let me explain what that intimate relationship is. Because some people have used that statement or that sentiment to argue that Middle East experts and analysts don't really understand the Middle East. After all, they say, 
You look at the Egyptian Revolution, hundreds of thousands of people went to Tahrir Square, and not one slogan referred to the Palestinian issue. Palestine was not central to the Egyptian Revolution. And you look around a region where 120,000 people have been killed in Syria by Syrians, where the violence in Algeria 25 years ago took more lives than the accumulated wars between Arabs and Israelis, Algerians killing Algerians, the genocide that took place in Sudan until South Sudan became an independent country. And so the, uh, those who object to this idea of a relationship between the peace process and the rest of the region say, this is a false relationship. And rather than focus on this peace process, let's try to build democracy. Let's try to build relationships with countries emerging from authoritarian dictatorships. And then if we can do that, then Israel will be in a better position to make peace with democratic neighbors. And there is a certain logic to that argument. But the same logic that there is to that argument ignores the logic that when you get down to the Arab street, to those who don't make policy, but who live in the countries where policy is made, the sentiment about the Palestinian issue runs extraordinarily deep. We heard it from previous diplomats. We heard it from previous generals, General David Petraeus, who told us twice over the last couple of years that as he traveled around the Middle East, the first thing he heard was a complaint about the United States' failure to activate a serious peace process. Now, Arabs are not expecting us to do magic. They understand that this is a hard conflict. It's been around for a long time. They've been involved in the conflict, in part responsible for it. So there's not an expectation when they make the criticism of the United States that they do that we haven't solved the problem. But they want us to work on it. And to the extent that we do work on it, we have consistently found it easier to bring Arabs aboard other elements and aspects of our policies. Now today, when we are facing challenges with regard to Iran's nuclear weapons pretensions, and when we face challenges with respect to the Syrian chemical weapons program, or challenges with respect to the Syrian civil war, or the future of Arab societies that are undergoing extraordinary change, being able to tap into the public sentiment within these societies is not a luxury. It's a requirement. Because if we're only trying to accommodate the needs of leaders, we will make the same, the same mistakes tomorrow and the next day that we've made in the past. We cannot ignore the sentiment in the Arab world that says that the United States, as the superpower, as the party with the best relationship with the state of Israel, has an extra responsibility to be involved in activating this peace process. And John Kerry understood this. He's understood it for years during his long and uh, rather significant Senate career. And he brought it with him to the State Department as he took over the helm of American diplomacy. Now, the tendency in the past, when secretaries of state either were told to be involved in the peace process or woke up one morning and decided to do so, was to adopt a mantra of, let's get to the negotiations. As though the mere fact of bringing about negotiations was answering the problem, responding to the problem. And the problem, as it turns out, was that if we were successful in achieving what these secretaries of state wanted, which was getting to negotiations, the negotiations were so unprepared that they ultimately failed and often left us in worse conditions than we had been before. Kerry understood this as well. So what did he do? He created what can only be called an architecture of peacemaking before he asked the parties to return to the negotiating table. You remember in the spring he brought the four Arab foreign ministers, the so-called Arab Quartet, to Washington along with the Secretary General of the Arab League 
and ask them to reiterate the Arab Peace Initiative and to modify it in a way that would make it easier for Israel not to adopt it. After all, it's Arab policy. It doesn't have to be Israeli policy. But for Israel to accept it as part of the basis for peacemaking. Now, for those of you who understand the Arab Peace Initiative, excuse me while I review it for those who may not recall its significance. I believe it's one of the most significant changes in Middle East policy in the last 60 years. Why? Because until 2002, when it was first enunciated at the Beirut Arab Summit, Arab state policy could be characterized as addressing what they called the problem of 1948, i.e., the problem of Israel's existence. And even if some Arab states had by that time begun to deal with Israel, Egypt in fact had a peace treaty, Jordan had a peace treaty, and there were other informal relations, this question of Israel's existence hung over Arab societies and Arab policy as late as 2002. At that time, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, now the King of Saudi Arabia, changed Arab policy by bringing to the Arab states for their decision, which was adopted unanimously at this summit, a peace idea which focused on resolving not the problem of 1948 or the existence of the State of Israel, but rather the problem of 1967 resolving the problem of occupation. Now, there are elements of the Arab Peace Initiative that are very difficult and maybe impossible for Israel to accept. And as I mentioned, it's not a question of Israel's accepting a dictate from the Arab world. But we need, and frankly, Israel needs, to recognize this substantial change in Arab state opinion and policy. And it's something that Kerry understood by reactivating that initiative as a building block for this architecture of peace. He didn't stop there. He also asked the president to appoint former General John Allen, who was well-versed in Middle Eastern affairs, having served a number of tours of duty with our military in the Middle East. He asked General Allen to return to public service and take a hard look at the security requirements that Israel and the Palestinians would face in the aftermath of a peace treaty. It's not a complicated question to ask, it's a complicated, complicated question to answer. If Israel is being asked to take risks for peace, which it is being asked to do, to yield territory, to yield strategic depth, to subject itself to the possibility of uh, incursions, to bring possible terrorists closer to population centers, if Israel is being asked to take those risks, it has a legitimate right to ask the question, how is our security going to be at least as good, if not better, in the aftermath of peace? Now, one answer to that question is that peace has its own advantages to security. After all, with all of the problems in the Egyptian-Israeli relationship and all the problems in the Jordanian-Israeli relationship, the two treaties that Israel has signed have remained firmly entrenched for more than 30 years in one case and now for almost 20 years in the Jordanian case. In other words, signed peace treaties are meaningful. And Arab states have proven that even if implementation of those treaties is not perfect, and there are certainly a lot of problems in areas such as the cold peace of uh, the lack of people-to-people -people relationships, the essential nature of those treaties has remained intact. So peace itself is a security provision, but that's not enough. And Kerry understood it, and that's why he wanted General Allen to be looking at questions of how do you compensate for the loss of strategic depth? How do you deal with the problem of bringing potential enemies closer to your population and industrial centers? How do you create a security environment in which you don't really want to build a 20-foot wall or a, an electrified security fence, where you want to hope that you can have a normal economic and social and political relationship between neighbors? Now, there are no perfect answers to these questions. 
But what Kerry understood and what John Allen is doing today, as he has done for the last eight months, is an intensive analysis together with the Israeli Defense Forces to see how much we can anticipate the issues that Israel will face in the aftermath of a peace treaty that will help deal with the question of defensible borders and the question of security. Kerry didn't stop there. Because Kerry also understood if you're going to create a two-state solution, which is the outcome here, as Jeremy said, it's the raison d'etre of J Street to support the idea, the critical idea, of a two-state solution. The last thing you want is to create a situation in which a state of Palestine emerges and becomes a failed state. Now, the reality is that significant progress has been made over the past decade, and particularly the last five, six years, in building the institutional capacity of the future state of Palestine. The former Prime Minister, Salam Fayyad, whom I worked with when I was our ambassador in Israel, he was the finance minister of Palestine at that time, did a really commendable job in trying to create capacity, trying to create an infra institutional infrastructure for a Palestinian state in which he could say, as he did in 2011, we're ready. If the diplomats can figure out how to dot the last I's and cross the last T's, we are ready institutionally. But Kerry wondered whether or not they'd be ready economically. And so he accepted a, an initiative that was first formulated by the World Economic Forum, by Davos, that promises Palestine a significant investment of billions of dollars when they are a state in need of that investment for their economy to run. And Kerry accepted an initiative created by Palestinian and Israeli business people, led by Munib al-Masri of Nablus and Yossi Vardi, who is the godfather of Israeli high tech, working together in an initiative called Bridging the Impasse, in which they say, yes, government investment is interesting, but the real engine of economic growth and prosperity for both societies is going to be the private sector. And so Kerry brought this into the picture. The Arab world, security, economic strength. And at that point, Kerry was ready to say to the parties, now I want you to get to negotiations. Because you have a safety net or an architecture or an infrastructure of peacemaking that gives this some vitality and some reason to believe that it can be consummated in an agreement. Now, having said all that, it would be easy for me to say, let's give John Kerry a round of applause. The United States has done its work. Thank you very much. I had a chance to meet with the Secretary in July, and I did commend him for building an architecture of peace. And I said to him, with a little bit of chutzpah, the hard work is really in front of you. Because, in fact, there were two significant questions that John Kerry and Barack Obama left unanswered even as they were bringing about the beginning of negotiations. The first was alluded to in Jeremy's opening remarks. Now, many of you in the audience have been business people, lawyers, professionals, other professions, and you know from negotiations in which you have been involved that you start a negotiation on the basis of some kind of agreed terms of reference. You don't agree on the outcome necessarily at the beginning, that's what you're there to negotiate about, but there is some common understanding of what it is that's on the table. One of the jobs I had many years ago was following a very small implementation issue in the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty. It was the question of Taba, a one square kilometer piece of the Sinai Peninsula, which Israel said belonged to it and would not be returned to Egypt under the terms of the treaty. Egypt said, no, Taba historically has been part of Egypt and it must be returned. Not one inch, you remember, was Sadat's watchword. We did this issue. We followed this issue for seven years as they worked their way through negotiations and arbitration, all of which 
was based on terms of reference that they needed to agree upon. And I tell you this because one of the problems of the current negotiations, at least it appears to be one of the problems, because we don't know a lot about what's going on inside the room, is that these two parties started negotiating without having reached agreement on what it is they're supposed to negotiate about. Palestinians would prefer to start with what is called in the lingo borders and security. In other words, creating the outline of a Palestinian state and in fact determining the borders of the state of Israel. Israel is one of the only countries in the world, probably the only country in the world, that doesn't have borders. It has had armistice lines, it's had ceasefire lines, it's had lines of occupation. But the Palestinian position is let's first create the outline of the two states and recognizing that there's an intimate relationship between borders and security, let's put that on an equal footing on the agenda so that as Israel thinks about its borders and as Palestine thinks about its borders, they can also look at the security ramifications of where that border would actually be. The Israeli position, as far as we understand it, has been, no, the 1967 lines, which are seen by the Palestinians as at least the basis of talks, and frankly, they're seen by our administration as the basis of talks, shouldn't be the basis of talks. That there is a view in Israel that was incorporated in a commission um, that was uh, uh, finished its work a couple of years ago, which basically says that the territories occupied by Israel in 1967 are disputed territories. They're not really occupied territories. And therefore, the beginning of a discussion about borders doesn't have to start with the lines of 1967. Israel has claims. It has claims based on history, on religion, on strategy, on security. We know that one of those claims is to station troops for an extended period of time along the Jordan River, something that John Kerry referred to in the quotes that I started out this talk with. So on this one question alone, and then you can now magnify this by starting points on settlements, and security, and Jerusalem, and refugees, and, 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 there was no common basis for these two sides to start talking. So the reason I suggested to John Kerry, and I don't think I was telling him anything that he didn't already know, the reason I suggested to him that the hard work had just begun, because the question would be, would the United States put forward, if the parties were unable to put forward, a set of guidelines, terms of reference or parameters that narrowed the scope of negotiations and created what might be called a kind of funnel effect, where you narrow the scope of the starting point and then you narrow the differences as they proceed along that course, with the United States playing a role in bridging uh, differences and uh, overcoming gaps through creative ideas. This question of what the United States role is going to be is exactly what's on John Kerry's agenda today. Now, most people will think in response to this that only the state of Israel will have a problem with American parameters, and that's not the case at all. Because a fair set of parameters is going to be very difficult for Israelis and Palestinians to accept. In the last book that I published, an edited volume called Pathways to Peace, I, in fact, in the chapter that I wrote, I included as an appendix the Kurtzer parameters. A little bit of chutzpah, to use the word again. But the suggestion was that at least it provided some idea that people could look at, that they might see how some of these issues could be handled. And as you look at those parameters, you will find that they're going to be challenging for both sides. Israelis are not going to like the idea that Jerusalem, in a context of an outcome, an agreed outcome, is going to be the capital of two states. A lot of Israelis are not going to like that at all. Palestinians are not going to like at all the reality that refugees, in exercising what they believe is their right of return, will not be returning to the state of Israel, perhaps to the state of Palestine. 
and so forth and so on. In other words, as you go through the requirements of concessions that each side has to make, they are equally challenging for both sides. And therefore, it's going to be challenging for John Kerry to make a decision to actually put forward these terms of reference. If he does, there is a prospect for progress. And I would suggest to you tonight, if he doesn't, the negotiations will not succeed. But that's only problem number one. I told you there were two. What happens if he does put them forward? And let's say they're reasonably fair parameters. And let's say both sides do have problems. And because they have problems, one or both sides say no. Now, we have experience as American mediators in the Middle East with three agreements that we helped broker, all of which were accompanied by no's from either one side or the other or both. It happened in 1975 when Henry Kissinger was negotiating a second Sinai disengagement agreement. And after the agreement seemed to be completed, Yitzhak Rabin, the Prime Minister of Israel, said no. And there was a full-fledged crisis between the United States and Israel. Some of you may remember it. Gerald Ford, then president, ordered what he called a reassessment of relations between the United States and Israel. He halted the delivery of warplanes that Israel had purchased from the United States. It was a real, not a fabricated crisis. In 1978, when Jimmy Carter met with Menachem Begin, Amar Sadat at Camp David, they had a real crisis over settlements, one that not only persisted through the period of negotiations of the treaty, but persists until today in the mind of Jimmy Carter. And much of what he has written about the peace process since then, in his mind, emanates from what he believes were Menachem Begin's promises that were not kept about curbing settlement activity. And when we helped in 1991 to bring about the Madrid Peace Conference, a major procedural breakthrough, not substantive, but procedural breakthrough, you recall that it was accompanied by a serious crisis between the United States and Israel over loan guarantees for the absorption of Soviet immigrants into the state of Israel. Soviet immigrants whose freedom from the Soviet Union was in large part attributable to American diplomacy. And so when Yitzhak Shamir, the prime minister, came to George H.W. Bush and said, we want help absorbing these folks into our society, Bush said, of course we want to help you. This is part of our diplomatic triumph. But when George Bush then said to Yitzhak Shamir, but please do not resettle these people in the West Bank and Gaza, and Shamir said no, Bush said, I can't give you the loan guarantees. And we had a crisis. So every time the United States has refused to take no for an answer, but has been determined to move forward in the peace process, two things have happened. Number one, we've won the day with the parties that have said no. In 1991, it wasn't only Shamir who said no, Hafez al-Assad, the father of today's president of Syria, the then dictator of Syria, also said no. And we changed his mind. We didn't take no for an answer, and we helped broker an Arab-Israeli agreement. And this becomes the second challenge for John Kerry. Challenge one is formulating a set of ideas, not a plan, not a detailed proposal, but a set of ideas that set these negotiations off on the right course. And then the second challenge is to tell the parties, we are not going to take no for an answer. We are determined that this is going to move forward, and we are going to stay the course. Now, I'll leave you both with a sense of optimism, but also a sense of realism. I'll start with the realism, because I want to leave you with a sense of optimism. The realism is, you know, the, the peace process team has often been attacked as being so focused on one issue that we lose sight of everything else. So periodically, you have to stand back and say, well, what does Barack Obama have on his desk today? And what he has on his desk is not the envy of any of us. Because in addition to all these issues just in the Middle East, he's got the rest of the world, which is not going all that well for American interests, and he's got all of the issues at home, 
which are not going all that well, either for America, but particularly for Barack Obama. And we have a divided polity and a divided political system, which is not going to make his job any easier. And so this second decision, whether or not to stay the course and do the hard work of turning a no into a yes, will require a presidential determination to expend very significant political capital. And that's a challenge. And it's a realistic problem that our president will have to face up to should John Kerry come to him and say, boss, either you say it's going to happen or we have to walk away. Now, why do I say I'm going to leave you with a sense of optimism? First of all, I'm a diplomat. And they say that optimism is to a diplomat what courage is to a soldier. Because you have to be crazy as a soldier to decide to walk out of the safety of your barracks and go into battle. And the only thing you bring with you, in addition to your equipment and whatever technology, you bring courage. And I can tell you after 30 years in diplomacy, you've got to be equally crazy to wake up in the morning and want to solve the Arab-Israeli conflict. And that's why you have to bring optimism. This is a doable proposition. It is a resolvable conflict. And there is no alternative to a two-state solution for the welfare of the state of Israel, for the welfare of the people of Palestine, and for the welfare of our national interests. Thank you very much. Stay here. Stay right here, Ambassador. Thank you. We really want to, I'm Rabbi Beth Singer, one of those new senior rabbis here at Congregation Emmanuel. We want to thank you for coming into our home and bringing your wisdom and your optimism. And I also want to thank everybody who's here this evening because it shows how much this matters. Um, you called it a conversation, so we're going to engage you in conversation. One question from one of our uh, listeners here tonight. Do you believe that if the Palestinians overtly state that they support the existence of Israel as a Jewish state, negotiations would leap forward? And maybe we speak right here. Well, as we know, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in 2009 in his first major speech on this issue uh, at Bar-Ilan University laid out this requirement as critically important to him in other words, he said it's not just the question of the state of Palestine ultimately recognizing the state of Israel. That's a diplomatic formula. What he wants is the people of Palestine and the government of Palestine and the Arab world to accept the right of the Jewish people to have established a state in the homeland of the Jewish people. Now, this is not an easy proposition for a lot of reasons. Number one, the state of Israel hasn't defined itself in a way that would allow others to give that recognition. There's no constitution in Israel. And there are at least a million non-Jews in the state who would find the definition of Israel singularly as a Jewish state to undercut their citizenship. Now Israel knows this, and it's one of the reasons why they've been wrestling with this question of constitutional identity for 65 years. Secondly, there's a sentiment among some in Israel, which is a little bit of, let's say, call it uh, hubris, which basically says, who needs someone else's recognition of my right to be here? Don't need it. I'm here. I don't need anybody's blessing. All I need is to know that they're going to abide by an agreement that they've signed not to conduct war with me. But there is an issue here, because the prime minister has made it an issue. So the question asks if the Arabs ever did make this leap of faith and make this pronouncement, of course it would propel things forward because it would meet one of the prime minister's core objectives. Do I suppose that this is in the offing immediately? No. But I think it'll be very hard for Palestinians to recognize Israel as something that Israel itself has not yet recognized, and that is its own identity as a Jewish, democratic, pluralistic state. Jewish organizations like the ADL or federations are busy defending Israel. 
How and when will these leaders start preparing the U.S. Jewish community for the realities of peace for Israel? Well, I guess you have to invite uh, ADL and uh, federations. Uh, it's really a question that should be posed to them. I, I think the, the presence of J Street tonight here is part of the answer. Uh, J Street has started this conversation around the country in synagogues and Jewish community centers. Not everybody agrees with J Street. There's a pluralism of views within uh, that movement, but it's a conversation that has to take place. And to the extent that uh, traditional Jewish organizations are avoiding this question, I, don't, I think they're not doing a service to our people. Uh, again, whether or not everybody agrees with the outcome, we need to have this conversation. And that's why I started out by congratulating all of you for being here tonight. We need to have this conversation. What effect do you think Lieberman's return as foreign minister will have on the peace process? Time to go. <laughs> there, there are questions that even a diplomat doesn't answer. Look, the reality is that Avigdor Lieberman uh, represents a viewpoint in Israel which uh, has expression, and he will give that expression now that he has been uh, uh, this uh, 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 burden of uh, presumed guilt has been lifted. Uh, the courts uh, uh, basically declared him not guilty, and uh, he is likely, uh, I don't know if it will happen, but he's likely to be appointed as foreign minister or reappointed as foreign minister as early as next week. What's interesting from a diplomatic standpoint is, uh, will be whether or not uh, Lieberman as foreign minister can represent the views of the government of Israel or whether he will represent the views of Avigdor Lieberman. You already have a situation in which the deputy foreign minister of the state of Israel publishes op-eds, including in the New York Times, that are contrary to Israeli policy. You know, our deputy secretary of state wouldn't last 10 minutes after publishing an article that ran counter to American policy. You join the administration in order to work on policy and then to defend that policy. Israel, I guess, is uh, different in this regard. So the real question, um, the answer to which we won't know, is whether or not Lieberman, when he returns, if he returns to the foreign ministry, brings with it a determination to work within the government to change policy and then to actively defend that policy, or whether or not he sees his perch in the foreign ministry as a means of promoting his own views. And that's something we won't know until he actually comes back into political life. If a peace agreement is reached, it will be subjected to a referenda in Israel and Palestine. What are the prospects that Israelis and Palestinians would approve of a comprehensive peace agreement? The question is easier to answer in Israel than it is in Palestinian society. Uh, polls in Israel have consistently shown that even if there's great skepticism about the possibility of peace and great concern that peace may lead to some security problems, the Israeli people, even in times of great stress, have shown an overwhelming interest in peace. In fact, when I was ambassador, um, Prime Minister Sharon was the Prime Minister for the entire time I was there, which is a different story. I can come back and fill an evening of stories of engaging with Ariel Sharon. Uh, really quite extraordinary. Uh, but we used to have conversations about this phenomenon. It was the middle of the Intifada. Israel is conducting a war of uh, great challenge to its security. Israelis are being killed all the time uh, just because they happen to be in a movie theater or a bus. And you'd have a public opinion poll that would ask two questions among many. One is, do you want to see Israel respond even tougher to Palestinian violence? And the answer was overwhelmingly yes. The Israeli public wanted the Israeli military and security services to hit back hard. And in the same poll, the pollster would say, if the right circumstances presented themselves and a fair deal presented, would you support peace? The answer was yes. And Sharon saw this, and we would laugh about it because it showed a people determined to defend themselves, but also a people quite willing to take risks for peace. 
I don't know if we can say uh, with the same kind of certainty um, the same about Palestinian society. Polls there have been largely supportive of the idea of a fair peace. Just the other day, there was a poll came out from uh, the University in Nablus, which raises questions in this regard. Uh, Palestinians are extraordinarily skeptical about the prospects for peace, not because they don't want it, but because there is a um, schizophrenia in their view. On the one hand, their leaders say, we're trying to make peace and we're negotiating and we're doing the tough work. And then they look out the window and they see settlement activity. And they say, you know, you can't fool my eyes. You can tell me you want peace, but change something on the ground so when I look out that window, there isn't a new settlement. And there isn't some new construction by a minority within Israel that knows exactly what it wants to do, which is to foreclose the option of peace. So the answer of Palestinians to this question is much more complex because of this dichotomy between what they hear and what they want and what they're seeing on the ground, and that's uh, part of the problem. So speaking of schizophrenia, please comment about the rift between the PA and Hamas as it relates to having a unified Palestinian front. You know, among the, uh, the various issues that you can list as um, needing to be overcome, and the list is long on substantive issues, Jerusalem borders, settlement security, you go down that long list and it looks really daunting there's an equally daunting list called politics. And the politics on both sides, the question was particularly on the Palestinian side, the politics on both sides um, are a separate set of problems. Palestinians, as you know, since 2007, have been divided both geographically and politically as Hamas took over uh, government in Gaza and basically seceded from the Palestinian Authority. Efforts at reconciliation have uh, failed. There isn't a lot of enthusiasm on the part of the Palestinian Authority to bring Hamas back into the fold unless Hamas will come in on terms that are favorable to the Palestinian Authority, which happen to be the same terms that the international community has laid out for Hamas to become a recognized partner. In other words, accepting Israel's right to exist, renouncing violence, and agreeing to implement agreements into which the Palestinian Authority had already entered. So the Palestinian Authority, in a sense, has those same conditions. And were Hamas ever to say, well, we will accept to join a government based on those provisions, then in effect you have reconciliation. Until now, that's eluded the Palestinians. And so it's compli complicated the, the peace process. There's no question about it. What uh, President Mahmoud Abbas has tried to do, however, is to think about a negotiation that will result in a two-state agreement which will remain intact as an agreement, but only part of it may be implementable in the first instance. In other words, the Gaza part of the agreement would be agreed, but it may be until the reconciliation issues, perhaps through the referendum, are resolved that uh, there would be this uh, uh, difference, bifurcation within Palestinian society. What's interesting, a couple of years ago, uh, before this, the outbreak of violence in Syria, I took my graduate students to Damascus, part of our study, and we met with two leaders of Hamas, Khalid Mishal and his deputy. And not that we expected them to tell us any secrets, which they wouldn't, but they both said the same thing, which is, we don't recognize the state of Israel, and it's unlikely that we can ever bring ourselves to do so. And we don't support peace negotiations, but we are part and parcel of the Palestinian people. And if an agreement is reached, and if there's a referendum in which the Palestinian people vote for the agreement, then we have to respect it. Now, this is a trust but verify question. Because, you know, do you really believe Khaled Michal at the end of the day? I don't know. This is what they say, and at least gives you some room to maneuver. It gives Abbas some reason to believe that if he can negotiate a fair agreement and then market it effectively within the Palestinian society, he will then be able to say to Hamas, you said you would uphold the agreement if the Palestinian people agreed to it. We have to wait and see on that one.
couple more questions. How does the right of return that so many Palestinians demand factor into a two-state solution, and could a one-state solution be possible? The Palestinians, uh, the Palestinian narrative of their history is in many respects centered around what they call the right of return. And it's, I, I put the right of return in quotations because it's a misquote from one paragraph of a very long United Nations General Assembly resolution in which the General Assembly said that Palestinians who are ready to live in peace with the State of Israel should be allowed to return to their homes in Palestine, be resettled in place, and so forth. Gave a number of options. There's no inherent right to return to a specific place. And international law in uh, refugee matters, uh, ensconced in every conflict situation, does not recognize the right of people to go back to the homes that they left or from which they were kicked out. It does not recognize it. In fact, there's an entire UN agency, the UN uh, High Commissioner of Refugees, that actively seeks to resettle refugees because it can't assert a right of return. Now, as part of the Palestinian narrative, what I just said is like you know, water off a cliff. It, it, it makes no difference to them. But the reality is that they are going to have to accept at some point that reality that they are not going to have the right to return to their homes in what was Palestine and now the state of Israel. This debate has taken on two different forms in the negotiations. One has been a question of numbers. Would Israel allow some number of refugees to return? And you can disaggregate the large number. Right now, the UN has about four or five million Palestinians recorded as refugees because it's the children and the grandchildren and so forth. But you can disaggregate that number and maybe look at just the living real refugees, the number of which is probably 50,000 or 75,000. So part of this discussion has turned into a numbers game. Would Israel allow some people back, either in terms of refugees or family reunification? And the second avenue in which they've discussed this is the question of historical narratives. Is there a way to formulate a, uh, a statement which gives Palestinians reason to believe that what they believe is 65 years of suffering has not been without meaning, but that doesn't cross a red line for the state of Israel and doesn't put Israel in a position where it is seen as having been born in sin for having, quote unquote, created the, the problem. So they've talked about this. There have been discussions in previous negotiations in both of these areas. Um, progress has been uh, elusive until now, uh, but that's going to be the direction um, that this is going to be pursued there will not be a right of Palestinian refugees to return that's recognized in a peace agreement between Israel and Palestine. Did you want to say anything about the one-state solution? Oh, yeah. Could there be a one-state solution? The answer is no. What's the next question? <laughs> no, I'll tell you why. Um, you know, it's, it's popular in some quarters, um, particularly amongst some Palestinians now who say, well, if we're second-class citizens in occupation, and since we're not making much progress in negotiating a two-state solution, okay, we accept to become citizens of the state of Israel, we'll be a minority, but at least we'll have rights. Sari Nuseba, the president of Al-Quds University, a former minister in the Palestinian government, wrote a book about two years ago in which he laid this out quite clearly, and this, he's a really intelligent fellow. He basically said, okay, we, we didn't win our objective of a, of a state, and it's unlikely that we will win it. So we'll become citizens of the state of Israel. Now, how many people in Israel want that outcome? Because what does it do? And you've heard this time and time again. It puts Israel in a bind of democracy and demography. If, I sound like a Talmud lesson now, if you give the Palestinians citizenship, then it's gonna be a matter of time until they become majority. There's about 10 million people between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Demographers argue about what the breakdown is, but they don't argue about the fact that at some point, the majority of those people are gonna be non-Jewish. Now, whether the point is 
2020 or 2050, you know, what are we arguing about? Do we really want to have a solution in which we're sure of a Jewish majority only for 30 more years? That gives us some comfort. So your democracy argument leads you into a blind alley because in a sense you can't afford to give citizenship to a people who are going to become a majority and vote your state out of existence. And the demography is a reality. We can't change it. It's not convenient anymore to think about population transfers. It's illegal in the state of Israel to adopt the policies of Kahana who talked about population transfers. So what are we talking about? It's not a realistic outcome. And frankly, it's not even realistic on the Palestinian side. Because for Palestinians to see their future in a state that may be a majority state at some point, but it's going to have a very significant minority with whom they have trouble living, this is not an answer to their question. The answer to this, this conflict is the two-state solution. It's hard, it's difficult, it's challenging. One-state solution simply doesn't work for either side. We're going to test the borders of your optimism here. Today, Hamas announced a new spokesperson, a UK-educated 23-year-old woman, um, to the promotion of young female, is the promotion of a young female trilingual uh, person to the post a sign of future uh, more progressive policies or politics in the Arab world? Well, wouldn't that be something if it were? Um, I don't know. I don't know who this person is and um, whether or not she brings a different view, whether or not her view would have any salience within Palestinian decision-making circles. Uh, my guess is that uh, it does have significance. You know, what we see when we look at Hamas uh, or its mothership, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, what we see is a monolithic uh, organization and ideology. And the reality is, and experts will tell you this, that there has always been a very significant uh, ferment debate within these organizations about who they are and what they are and what their relationship is to the rest of the society. There's a group within the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood that actually wants to bring women and Coptic Christians into the Muslim Brotherhood because they recognize that they can't be a, a strictly um, sectarian organization if they want to govern the country ultimately. It's not a majority within the organization, but it suggests to you that it's more differentiated than we have tended to see. This may be a sign of more differentiation within Hamas. I don't know. Uh, and it remains to be seen whether or not this person who comes in with apparently a lot of skills and with a background that's quite different from you know, the 55-year-old male who served 25 years in Israeli prisons for killing people, whether or not she will actually have influence within the movement. If she does, and if it's influence in the right direction, then it would be quite interesting. I'm going to take the prerogative of a final question for you, Ambassador. Um, you've made the case for America, the, the need for America's involvement in this process. And we're Americans, we're congregations, we're uh, Jewish, we're interfaith. Um, if, what would be a meaningful statement that you would like to hear from, that the U.S. government would want to hear from congregations, from organizations, from interfaith groups, from churches? Uh, regarding regarding peace in the Middle East. What, what would you want to hear from us? Look, the reality is that um, the details, the devil is always going to be in the details and congregations are not going to be able to comment on those details. But a strong statement from Congregation Emmanuel, from J Street, from other congregations, from churches and mosques, that number one, we, us, see a um, realization of a peace treaty between Israel and Palestine as an essential national interest of the United States, that we want the United States to elevate this issue to the level of importance that it deserves, and that we want to see an administration that's prepared to see this through as best it can, understanding that navigating these waters are going to be difficult, but that we, the American people, will stand behind the administration as it takes these steps. I think if Washington hears this from San Francisco and from LA and Phoenix and wherever, and gets the idea that out there, beyond the Washington Beltway, the American people really want them to work on this issue, it will make a difference.
So once again, I just want to say a uh, thank you to Ambassador Kurtzer and a thank you to Rabbi Singer and the Emmanuel community. The final question was really a, uh, a wonderful segue to my close, uh, the question of what can we do uh, to assist in this. I think that the uh, Ambassador talked about the architecture for peace that the Secretary of State has tried to construct, and there's a piece of that architecture that he has talked about to the American Jewish community, and I hope that you all have heard about it. He has called on the American Jewish community to help to create what he calls the great constituency for peace. Because he has said that at a certain point, what's going to be needed is the support and is going to be needed to show that there is, in fact, a base of people who wants this to happen and is going to provide the impetus for the tough decisions and the compromises that are going to need to be made. To answer that call by the Secretary of State, J Street has started what we call the Two Campaign. It is specifically designed to demonstrate to the Secretary and to the President, who, yes, is going to have to make that critical decision about whether or not to expend the political capital to actually make this two-state deal happen. And for those of us who believe not only it's an essential national interest of the United States, but it's vital to Israel's survival. We want the President of the United States to make that decision, and we have to show that there is that constituency for peace. So I would ask all of you to join us in this two campaign. There is information about it on the table in the back. There is a website at twocampaign.org with the number two and the word campaign.org to show support for the Secretary to sign our petition to grow this campaign you can text your support, uh, to, uh, say to campaign to 69866. The two campaign has two goals. One, demonstrating that that great constituency for peace exists, but two, to delineate what is it really going to take. The exact sorts of parameters, the exact sorts of compromises that the ambassador spoke about tonight. In our community, it has become cheap and easy to say that we support peace, to say that we support two states. Everybody is a two-state solution supporter now. There, there isn't an organization beyond perhaps the ZOA in the American Jewish constellation that doesn't say, of course, we're for a two-state solution. But you can't be for a two-state solution and not begin to acknowledge that there's going to be a capital for the Palestinian people, for a Palestinian state in the city of Jerusalem, and a capital for the Jewish people of the state of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. You can't be for a two-state solution and not be willing to talk about borders that are based on 1967 with swaps. You can't be for a two-state solution and not say, there isn't going to be a right of return for five million Palestinian refugees to the state of Israel. These are the realities that a two-state solution is really going to involve. And the two campaign is about educating and delineating on all of those core issues. What is it going to take to get to peace? So through the two campaign, J Street will be holding educational seminars on all of these issues, allowing people to learn to find out more about the core issues of the conflict. So we're asking you on the one hand to be part of the great constituency for peace, to sign up, to sign that petition, to get your friends to sign that petition, to show the political will, and on the other hand, to involve people in the conversation so they can begin to learn what it's really gonna take for us to get to that goal, which is two states for two people, peace and security, for Israelis and Palestinians. So I invite you to join us. I hope you'll find more information in the back. Talk to the J Street staff, visit our website, and become involved in our campaign and in J Street. Thank you very much for coming this evening. Thank you, Ambassador Kurtzler.